This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. So who's, who's allowed to come here? And is it everyone from a certain iwi, or is it... No, just our people. Just your people? Yeah. No, no. We were by ourselves, we shouldn't come here. Mm. But if you've been invited to, we have to bring you to make sure that you're safe. Because anything can happen up here. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure, and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. Now, Ash, we've already heard about your amazing trip to Nepal to learn more about tourism in the mountains and the lives of the Gurkhas. And by the way, if you haven't heard those episodes already, you really should give them a listen after this. Now, that trip was back in February 2020. And today we're going to be treated to your next big adventure, which you managed to squeeze in right before lockdown. That's right. As you know, I have a long love of New Zealand, used to live there. And I managed to get out there whilst coronavirus was bubbling away as an idea. And I'm glad I managed to get out and do it, not least so that I can share this journey with you and our listeners. And for me, most of the trip was about learning about the history and culture of the Māori, who are the indigenous people of New Zealand. Uh, And through doing that, I got some pretty dramatic whitewater action in there too. So can you give us some background on who the Māori actually are? So the Māori are the indigenous people of New Zealand. They were there when Europeans arrived and then colonised the islands of New Zealand. And they were sea voyagers originally. They largely arrived in New Zealand about 900 years ago. But that was at the end of this long migration all the way through Polynesia, through the Cook Islands, and then heading south down into New Zealand. And so with all of that travelling, you develop two things. The technology, which is the ships, the sails, the outriggers to make them more stable. And then there's the skills, which is the navigation itself, how to work out which direction you're going in, navigating by the stars. They taste the water to know how close they are to fresh water. They follow certain birds because they know those birds must have been on land recently. And they use all of those things to navigate. It reminds me a bit, Ash, and forgive me for being reductive here, but Moana, I don't know if you've seen it. It's um, a Disney film about Polynesian culture. And spoiler alert, she sort of discovers um, that she's part of this seafaring heritage. And th- there seems to be a massively strong connection to the sea um, in Polynesian culture. Is Am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. Uh, I tragically have not watched Moana. I keep what? trying to watch it. But it's true. And it also cuts to the commonality of the heritage that all these different Polynesian groups have. And it's interesting they talk about her rediscovering that she comes from the seafaring people, because to an extent that has happened to the Maori of New Zealand over the past hundred years or so. And I met this guy called Jack Thatcher whilst I was in the Bay of Plenty. And Jack is a traditional Maori navigator. He was a officer in the New Zealand army Uh, but I met up with him to learn a bit more about how the Maori navigated and guys like Jack 
have rediscovered this navigational heritage because, of course, once the Maori got to New Zealand, they stayed there, so they didn't have to navigate across the oceans so much. And they didn't retain that knowledge in the same way that maybe the Fijians did. So actually, Jack learned his navigation, not from his heritage through New Zealand, but by going out to the Cook Islands and to Fiji and to Hawaii and learning it from other Polynesian cultures out there. Now, unfortunately, I met up with him uh, in one of the harbours right next to a main road. So you can hear a bit of traffic in the background. But the story he told me was amazing. Have you done more of the sort of sensing elements as well? So beyond the celestial navigation, the using the currents, and I've heard of tasting of the waters to tell if you're near land and things like that. Is that do you do any of that as well? So our teacher, he could do that. His brother could do that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the first generation of those that have come back to this. I came back to it when I was 30. So, so is this something Jack does for fun? Is it his job, hobby? Like, what, what, what's his deal, Ash? So I talked about them rediscovering the heritage, the Maori heritage. And part of it is because in New Zealand, a lot of young Maori people sort of lost their way to an extent. They're economically deprived, loss of connection with their culture. There was a lot of worries about drugs and gangs. So Maori elders, people like Jack... Uh, teach them the old ways of navigating by the stars, remembering and relearning their heritage and their culture. And it kind of helps them build a relationship and a connection between their ancestry, which is so important to Maori culture and also modern life. Jack was an officer in the army, uh, but he also has spent a lot of time out on his boat doing the navigation and teaching young Maoris about their heritage. And uh, one of my trainees, he was, he was navigating, we were training, navigating to a place called Tubuai. Anyway, we're up here, and uh, one of the crew comes up and says, oh, hey, it's what's changed? And he says, it's not what's changed until your uh, navigator says it is. And he says, oh, yeah, but it's 12 o'clock. And I says, and how do you know that? And he says, oh, my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, what the hell? <laughs> I says, oh, thank God that your, your iPad is going to run out of battery soon. Oh, I was hoping that I could charge it. And I go, no. <laughs> yeah, and then they used to sneak them in. I give them to the radio. Oh, can you charge my, charge my thing up before Jack sees? And I'm going, okay, this is what's going to happen. I don't care whether you know it's 12 o'clock or not. You're not going to change until I or Piripi tell you it's time to change. And if you keep coming up and saying, but it's time to change, you're going to be going longer. <laughs> so we're going to start with six hours on, six hours off. It's a big effort to keep that Maori culture alive. It's a very rich culture, full of knowledge, but also stories and metaphors. And one of the examples he gave me uh, was about how the North Island was discovered by the demigod Maui on a fishing trip with his brothers. So what we, what we see is, uh, you know, Maui pulled the fish out of the ocean. We call this island Tika Maui. Uh, from our our perspective as voyagers, we think that we're pulling the island out of the ocean as we're moving towards it. And so it gets bigger and bigger, just like a fish coming up on the line. You know, you pull it out of the depths, it comes up, and then you go, yeah, I see the flash of the fish. It's the same with the island, you know. If you had a clear horizon, you'd see this little blip on the horizon. It would just appear. The closer you get to it, it would grow. And it would seem to grow and grow and grow until finally, you know, your fish is there for you to land on. I love the idea of fishing out an island in a sense. And I can, I'm sat here, Ash, and I can see the Isle of Wight uh, from my window. And I'm wondering, you know, if I've gone fishing for that, where, where that one's come from. 
<laughs> it's a big fish, the Isle of Wight, I guess. It is, yeah. I, I love it. And you're right. When you start to think about navigation and everything in this way, you get a much stronger connection to the land. You have a feeling for it, like you have a feeling for the Isle of Wight. It's a big place. And actually, whilst I was up in the top of the North Island, I visited a kauri forest. Kauri is a big hardwood, a bit like the redwoods of California. And I was with a Maori lady called Merapea, and she took me to go and see a specific tree. Uh, which they call Tane Mahuta. Welcome to the father of the forest. He stands at just under 30 metres tall from ground all the way to the top. That tiny seed that I showed you all before, if we were to germinate that seed here 3,500 years ago, we would have to much rangahiri. What we say he is not a ruin, a relic, a building or a pyramid. He is a living entity providing us with that very important word, life. So, so did Māori clear land at all for farming? No, hmm. no. They, they lived in places like this, and they relied on places like the forest and the sea for its plentiful bounty. And wherever they lived, they always made... You know, the Māori have this amazing understanding of, of nature and the land that they come from, but... They've had a really rough time over the last 150 years, and that was because of the arrival of the British in the 19th century, and particularly the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, which was related to sovereignty in 1840. I'm just on my way to the Waitangi Treaty grounds. This is a place up in Northland on the Bay of Islands where a treaty was signed between the British and some Māori chieftains, or Māori tribal leaders, that led to British sovereignty happening over New Zealand, effectively the creation of the nation. And it's a controversial event and a controversial treaty because uh, it's thought to be some duplicity around it and the translation from the English to the Māori wasn't perfect and actually says slightly different things. Um, But the grounds are where this is memorialised and a lot of that history discussed. When we're trying to understand what's going on in a country like New Zealand today, it's important to understand the history and look at it critically. Now, the Treaty of Waitangi is important because it's considered the founding document of New Zealand as a nation. As I mentioned, it's controversial because there were some ideas about whether or not the English translation perfectly translated into the Maori translation. So maybe the Maori didn't know what they were signing up to. And basically, it gave sovereign authority to the British crown. And that has had a huge impact. And... At the Waitangi Treaty Grounds, they do a cultural performance. Now, most people around the world will know of New Zealand because of the haka. The New Zealand All Blacks, the rugby team, they do it at the start of every game. Music is an integral part of Maori culture. So it really does seem like the Maori have had a really hard time of it, but it's it's great to hear um, that their culture is still very much kept alive. Yeah, you're right. Interestingly, when I spoke to the guys at the Waitangi Treaty Grounds, one of the things that they did say was that tourism gives them a, a reason and an income for keeping their culture alive in terms of the practices of the songs and the dances and other things that allows them to keep that aspect of their culture alive. But then also... You know, Maori culture is a part of New Zealand identity in a way that very few other indigenous cultures are in 
what were nations colonised by Europeans. Compare it to Australia, Maori culture is much more prominent in New Zealand than Aboriginal culture is in Australia. And um, did you do any other sort of cultural visits, so to speak, Ash? Well, I did. There's a, a, a river called the Wanganui River, and it's a very important river to the Maori. It's a sacred river, and it goes through the southwestern, well, western southwestern part of the North Island from the central volcanic range. It was one of the most densely populated regions for the Maori. And along the way, it's got marae. So a marae is a bit like a, I guess it's like a village to the Māori. So the Waitangi Treaty Grounds, when I went onto that house, I went onto a marae. And going onto a marae in Māori culture is, it's a bit like going into somebody's house, really. So, so is that where you were at the start of the episode, Ash, when you were, you were being invited in? What, what was going on there? Yeah, exactly. So you can't just walk onto a marae. You have to be invited onto a marae by the people who are from there. And so whilst I was down on the Wanganui River, we were being looked after by uh, a Maori guy from the Iwi or tribe of that region called Reina. And what Reina does is much like Jack takes these young Maori boys and girls out on the ocean-going canoe, the ocean-going waka, and teach them about their culture and these skills. Rainer does the same on the Wanganui River. So he takes young Maori boys and girls, takes them for this multi-day waka canoe trip down the down the Wanganui River and teaches them all about their heritage and culture. And they stay on the various marais along the river, uh, of whom, you know, Rainer is almost a custodian because that's his iwi's marais. And I went down the river with Raina and I was also with five white women from the north of New Zealand and I was with a Dutch student. And this was a fantastic opportunity to really get an understanding of the Maori culture of this part of New Zealand. Reina was arriving on the marae and he was doing a haka to let the people of the marae know who's coming. Now, there was nobody physically there, but according to Reina, who was there, were the spirits of his ancestors guarding the place. Can you give me a sense of scale of this place? Like, how, how big are we talking here? Yeah, so I guess the central thing of a marae is like a clearing. So we had been down on the Wanganui River. We'd pulled up onto this rocky beach and then climbed up through the forest, really steep climb up through the forest. And then there was this sort of plateau. You would never have seen it from the river. And in this clearing, there was a toilet at the back and then basically just a, an open-sided shed. And then separate to that was a cooking area. And this is where Rainer and his family come when they just want to get out of the city. It's more than a camping ground because it's where they connect to their ancestors and it's where they connect to themselves. A lot of our people come up individually um, in groups just to be here, to be present within this environment and this existence. Good. So this is um, Uncle Pikey's grave site. Uncle wanted to be buried here so he can keep an eye on things because he was the guardian, the protector with the taiha. 
So like if there was a warrior from another tribe coming down, he was sent to deal to him. A lot of our Urupa were up in the hills, our cemetery were up in the hills, because we were trying to protect them from invaders. Mm-hmm. Back in the old days, people who wanted to curse the tribe would go and dig up the bones of their ancestors and put a curse on them. So that curse will pass down through the koiwi, the bones, through those ancestors of those bones. So that's why when, my, um, when I was young, I asked my grandfather, Oh, Kuro, are we related to anybody up north, up in Ngāpui? And he goes, of course, boy, that's where your bones are. So when you talk about Reina being really connected to that land, I mean, it, it's, it's visceral, isn't it? It's uh, the bones are there. That, and I love that idea that you can trace back your ancestry through through literal bones in the ground. Yeah, and for the Māori, this gives them a real sense of power and connection to themselves and where they come from and to the land. And that's why the theft of Māori land or the acquisition of Māori land by the British and descendants of those original colonisers is so viscerally tragic to the Māori because that is who they are. That is where they come from. There's this connection to it that is much more visceral than just that's where I come from. Mm. It, it sounds like a really intimate thing to be invited along to, Ash. Did you get a sense that it was um, a very special thing you, you were being asked to partake in? Oh, a- absolutely. And, you know, I felt remarkably privileged that Raina felt comfortable enough and felt that we were going to be respectful enough to show us these places that are genuinely sacred to his family and his iwi, which is his wider tribe uh, that he's a part of Mm, incredible um and so where did you go next well so we were on a river journey this marae was just one of many places we stopped along the journey so we went back down to the river I'm on the Wanganui River, which is a river in the North Island of New Zealand that goes from the mountain region of Ruapehu down to the town of Wanganui. And it's a sacred river to the local Māori. They call it the Awa. And actually the river, a couple of years ago, got the legal status of a person as part of the efforts to protect it. It's fascinating to think that the legal methods used to protect the sacred river reflect the beliefs of the Māori and it's a truly remarkable place because it's so pristine we're going along these beautiful gorges with native forest on either side huge fern trees and there's no sign of humans anywhere there's plenty of bird life seen a few goats but it really does feel like we're paddling through a primeval world Oh, that blessing at the beginning, the, the sound seemed to reverberate off the banks. Oh, I loved it. Um, but Ash, it, it, it sounded pretty tranquil, that river journey. I'm not going to lie. It sounded like more like um, yeah, a, a lazy summer day, maybe, down, down the river. The river was beautiful. And whilst that bit that you could hear me on just there was pretty smooth, there were some bumpier bits down the way. Most of the time, the river is pretty benign. It's flat and calm. 
almost like a mirror reflecting the beautiful sides and these steep gorges. Sometimes it's going straight through a proper gorge and other times the river widens out to these curves that are incredibly appealing to the eye with a beach on the inside of the bend and you can see the current rushing around the corner towards a rapid. Naturally I can hear the sound of a rapid now. We're in a two-man canoe. Right at the moment, I'm with Delwyn, and she's paddling up front, and I'm steering in the rear of the canoe. Okay, we're coming up to this rapid now, and the first thing I do is I stand up to try and see the fast point of the water. It looks like a V where it goes through the rapids, and it looks like it's over on the left, but it's quite hard to see. We can hear the roaring of the rapid. Oh, it's shallow here, very shallow. Okay, I'm just giving, if we'd have stuck on there, I think I would have tipped in given that I was standing up. Quite a shallow bottomed canoe, but here we give him some catch. Okay, I think we can see the V straight ahead. Yeah, do you think that's the V, Delwyn? Okay, one. Two. Three. Well, okay, so there's a, a big log that we need to avoid, so, okay. Right, we're in it now, and I'm just going to start steering to the right. Okay, good. Yep. Oh, oh. Yep, stay on. That's good. Okay, now now we're going to steer right. Now we're steering right. That's it. Good. Oh. Okay, there's another one. That's it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're through. Well, we're through that bit. We've just got to right, avoid that rock bank. All right, that's it. And we're through. Oh, that was a good one, wasn't it? A bit rock and roll. Okay, so for any kayakers out there, Ash, like how how big was the water? How how large are we talking here? I mean, I'm not a professional kayaker, but I think it was probably somewhere about grade one or two. Now, I'm glad that we had Raina with us because I'd never really done stuff quite like this before uh, in a canoe. Anyway, I'd done it on a sort of whitewater raft, and you know these are these are the worlds. You're up in an area where if you get rain on the mountains it can come down pretty fast so you definitely don't want to go down these rivers if you're completely inexperienced but you know we were able to navigate them safely after the first day each one on our own without rain having to talk us through it uh but the great thing about kayaking on this river is it's one of the great walks of new zealand it's very well established and it's a great place uh for travelers to go down and be able to camp along the way well, we've got everything up the hill, and now we're setting up our campsite. DOC, which is the Department of Conservation, have set up sites all along the river for people to use as campsites when they're travelling the river. And some of them are managed huts, where there are a couple of hut wardens, and there are gas cookers and bunks, but others are just campsites. So this is a beautifully flat piece of ground, and there's toilets... There are big water pods which collect rainwater, which you can use for drinking. You should boil it first, but uh, rainwater is usually okay. And then there's a little shelter which you can use for doing the cooking and a couple of tables. And it's a really lovely place to spend the evening. All around us is native forest. I don't know the names of all of the trees, but what is special about New Zealand is the number of types of fern because it's been isolated from the rest of the world for so long. But you have these giant fern trees and everything is covered in the moss and lichen, which shows how good the air quality is here. And uh, you can hear birds twittering away in the trees.
Yeah, I'm sitting back in London now, Pip, just remembering saying those words and what I would give to be back in that forest in New Zealand right now. And as you know, Pip, I love going for a swim in wild water whenever I come down to see you in in Wittering I go for a splash in the sea literally Uh, you can't stop your ass you're in and I saw you were in the Thames yesterday as well well yeah I I was I was in the Thames not in London a bit further upstream (laughs) but I did go for a swim in the Wanganui River as well of course and it's lovely down here now just opposite me there's some water seeping out through the rock you can hear it trickling down and other than that there's just the sound of Insects, a few birds tweeting, maybe the odd amphibian. I'm not sure what amphibians they have here. Uh, but yeah, gonna jump in the river now and wash off the day's exertions. You know what that reminded me of? You know those sleep apps where you kind of get uh, like soothed to sleep with those noises in the background? It sounded exactly like that. (laughs) I'm glad that I'm putting you to sleep, Pip. (laughs) Even though there's nothing to worry about in the river because this, of course, is New Zealand and there's nothing that is nasty enough to get you. I don't quite have the confidence to go out for a swim, even though it's extremely calm, just because probably the more sensible thing to do. But that was lovely, going into the river that you've been on for the whole day and having a little splash. It's this pristine environment, and you have to take in whatever you want on the river and take it all out again, of course, because you don't want to leave any waste there. So we carried these basically chillers, these cool boxes of everything we wanted to eat on the river we cooked at the different huts along the way we took our own cookers with us so you know we we were not slumming it pip i even had a couple of bottles of wine good new zealand pinot noir Gah, what sort of river trip is this <laughs> this is proper luxury camping well maybe not quite luxury but it was great and that's a cool thing about having a kayak you can just chuck whatever you need in the boat and go down the river it's not like hiking where everything's on your back so yeah, we had bolognese, we had curries, we uh, had really good sandwiches in the daytime. Oh, it was delicious. Rainer was the uh, chief cook uh, and I was his very willing assistant. So Rainer has been using his mighty cooking skills for the last hour or so and has cooked us up a feast. There's two candles on the table and spaghetti and amazing chow mein, I think it is. Thank you. Thank Ash, that sounds absolutely yummy. A very far cry from my own river journeys where I think I was eating like freeze-dried food and rice. So I'm very, very jealous. But unfortunately, (laughs) your journey got cut short, didn't it? Yeah, you know, I was having the most magical time. There's no phone signal there. 
So I wasn't in touch with anyone. I was just having this brilliant time bimbling down the river, writing my diary, just enjoying myself, enjoying the river, enjoying hanging out with people. And then on the final, not the final, the penultimate morning on my third day on the river, we're just loading up the boats and then Rainer's cousin, Wayne, appears on a jet boat and Wayne pulls in and goes, are you Ash? I'm like, yeah, he goes, all oh, right, mate, we're, uh, you're coming with me. We're taking you out because the airports are shutting down and the New Zealand Tourist Board need to make sure you get home before you can't get out. Wow. God, that's dramatic. Yeah, I mean, this is all coronavirus. So, you know, when I arrived in New Zealand, there was sort of talk about coronavirus happening, but it all felt very distant. And obviously for those three days on the river, I didn't hear anything. But I think the United States had shut down all flights from Europe and my flight home went via Los Angeles. And understandably, they really didn't want to have me stuck in New Zealand for the next few months. So yeah, they sent Wayne out on the jet boat to pick me up, get me home and send me back to Auckland Airport. But on the way, Wayne did show me this very special place. It was basically this crack in the rock that led into the river. And he pulled right up into the front of it with the jet boat. And I could smell sulphur. And inside the crack, I could see sulphur deposits. And there was this trickle of water coming through the rock. Now, what this was, was this was a hot spring, a volcanic hot spring that came all the way uh, from the central mountain, Ruapehu, which is a volcano, and to the Māori, that physical connection between the volcano and the river represents a spiritual and familial connection between the people of the mountain and the people of the river. So this is another part of that layered history where it's not just like, oh, there's a volcanic spring and there's a river. It's a case of this point where the volcanic spring from the mountain meets the river represents the connection of the families and the bonds that they have together. Do people go and visit it, Ash? Like, what's the purpose? How, how do people use it? Or do they? Well, had I not been with Wayne, if I'd just been kayaking along the river, I may not have even noticed it. I might have smelled a bit of sulphur, but I wouldn't have particularly noticed this crack in the rocks. And Unless you were swimming in the river, you wouldn't have noticed the warmer water. But what Wayne was saying is that when they do the Tirahowaka, which is that thing that I mentioned that Rainer does earlier, where they do this long river journey and introduce young Maori boys and girls to their heritage, they stop at all these sacred spaces and these sacred spots along the way. And this spring is one of them. And what they do is the elders tell them the stories of each place. So what I just told you about this connection between the volcano and the river and the volcano, the people of the mountain and the people of the river, that is what the elders would tell them at this place. It's called a Carrero, a story that explains something. So they'd stop at this place, they'd go for a swim in it to sort of feel more connected and then they'd hear the story from their elders. Beautiful. It is. And like you can see, you can see through the hour and everything, not a lot of people do know about this place, but those that go on the Tenohoiwaka from the age of 12, get to learn it and you'll never ever forget it. And this, sure is, and this is how you connect with your ancestors? And this is how we connect with our ancestors. And that's where the um, where it came from, from the Sawa, from the mountain to the sea. And we're all tied in as one, as one big family, inland and here. Beautiful, thank you for bringing me. No Very sacred space, this place. 
very sacred to our people and to our inland people. It's sacred for the fact that it shows our bond together. You can feel the vibe of one another when I park in here. Mm. Puts a little bit of goosebumps on yeah. you, on the old body. And as you go along, there are certain places where you feel the the stories and, and you feel the ancestors more strongly. Exactly. And and if you sit here at night or along our, our bank lines, you can hear the river singing to you every night, as well as you singing to her. Oh, just absolute magic. That idea of the river singing. I think anyone who's spent time near a river will completely know what that feels like. Doing a river journey, going from source to sea, as you did on the Esquiro, of course, Pip, you know how powerful that is. You can see why the stories of the Māori are so connected to this river and why they do the Tirahowaka, why they have this journey that is a rite of passage for them. Oh, it really, it really does sound like, Ash, this is a river that's going to stick with you for a while. Well, as I, as I left, Rain had said to me, he said, uh, don't worry, bro, you'll be back. The river's not finished with you yet. Oh, that has just given me goosebumps. So obviously, a lot of what we do here on the First Mile Ash is talk about ways to improve the, our travelling experience and the way that we travel through the world. Has this journey shaped you in any particular way? Well, I mentioned earlier that was such a privilege to see the river and to travel the river in the company of Rainer. So I didn't just see it through his eyes, but I also, I I guess I felt it through his heart in a way. And, you know, I could have just gone there and had a lovely time paddling down the river, enjoying hanging out and camping and drinking wine and eating good food. And, oh, isn't this beautiful? Look at the birds. But to understand it through a different metaphysical lens was... A remarkable thing to do and it just felt different and this has made me want to ensure that when I travel in places I try and see it through the lens of the people who are from that place like who deeply from that place the indigenous people of that place and understand the way that they feel about it too and I think that's an important way to to try and travel the world. Oh, that line, Ash, to feel the river through his heart. I think that's, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one. Yeah, sounds like you had an amazing trip. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thank you, Pip. Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. We've really enjoyed making this show and we'd love it if more people could hear it. So if you have enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find The First Mile? Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It really doesn't have to be long. Send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or simply take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us in it at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart. Then go and put your feet up with a nice cup of tea. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.